sometimes I know when I'm uh, in deep in practice and getting very involved in how the practice is going and the different techniques and the subtleties of the meditation, it can be uh, easy to forget that even the intensive depth of meditation itself is, is only a tool, one of many tools to enable our heart, our mind, to open to the liberation of heart and mind through non-clinging. In other words, the meditation isn't an end in itself. Hopefully, we're not here only to become ace meditators, which may or may not happen. It's not in the Olympics yet as an event. (laughs) But that we're here to bring all the conditions together to allow our hearts and minds to open to truth. Of course, the meditation is our most powerful and useful tool. But even here, the work is happening on many levels in all of the things that we do all through the day. So that just to remember that our, our journey of awakening is not a linear process on a scale, you know, just going up, 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 up till it reaches some point of peak experience and that's it. It's really a constant balancing act, you know, um, expanding contraction, falling out of balance, coming back into balance. But the balance is balancing the awareness, balancing the state of our attention of our mind and heart so that it's so exquisitely, delicately balanced, vividly awake, present, no holding back, yet at the same time not involved in any toing and froing, any pushing and pulling, any manipulating, this delicate balance. And what I want to talk about tonight is a particular factor, it's a mental factor, but it's a particular aspect of our experience, but it's a factor that Buddha spoke about a lot that's extremely useful, I find, and interesting to be aware of that helps us look at all different aspects of our experience with an eye of awakening, with how to pay attention in order to awaken, how to use the experience. And this aspect is called um, wise attention. That's the usual translation. Sometimes I've seen it translated as appropriate attention. Just to give an example, or like a, one of many conceptual framework of some of the different levels and how the way we pay attention in different areas of our experience can serve to awaken us. There's one, that's um, a framework called the three vatas or the three rounds of samsara. You thought there was only one round of samsara, but in this one there's three. I just find it interesting. The first, the first round is that of deeds or speech. In other words, when we are not mindful, and in, in all of these, of course, mindfulness is always our protection. But in this first round of, of deeds or speech, it's called, when we're unmindful, the, the round of transgression. In other words, when we're not mindful and some of the torments of mind spring up, of greed, of hatred, confusion, In this round, it's called transgression because we actually speak or act out of that unmindfulness, you know, in an unwholesome or harmful way. So to give a simple example here, if you go to your walking meditation spot, and everyone knows it's your walking meditation spot, but somebody got there before you, had the nerve, after three weeks, they took it. Okay, in the round of transgression without mindfulness, we'd actually say or do something, you know. And that we're protected from by sila. That's really, have there been times when you can just thank the Lord for having taken the, the precept of noble silence? You know, that's the thing that keeps our mouth shut, you know. That's nothing to sneer at. That's really useful. So that's on the level of transgression. Um, 
The, the second more subtle one is called the uh, obsessive level, <laughs> which we're also probably quite familiar with from time to time. And this is on the level of thoughts, of course. You go to the walking place, the person's there. You don't, it doesn't even come that you're going to say or do something, but the mind just picks at that and worries at that and gets lost in thoughts of revenge and what you're going to do and how you have to write a note, you know. When you find yourself writing a note to the staff about 25 times in your mind, it's a good chance you're hanging out at this level at that moment. That's actually how I check myself for yogi mind when I'm on retreat. I find myself, well, the cooks just really need to know this. It's for the benefit of all beings. It's not for me. I only care about the other yogis for myself. It doesn't matter. And I just watch if that comes up for three days running. I go, uh-huh, you know, never write the note right away. That's my advice. Because they can read your handwriting, even if you don't sign it. They know who it's from. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, on this level of obsession, the repetitive compulsive thought, is said that samadhi, concentration, protects us. And you can see that as your concentration, as the mind gets more focused, we're not as liable to get so sucked in to these obsessive thoughts. They may come up, but it's easier to come back to the breath or to the changing objects, and the obsession doesn't take hold. That's our protection. And then the most subtle level is called the uh, latent, the latent level. And this is the one that I think can give rise at times to a sense of discouragement if we're not quite paying attention. Now this is the level where you really can be quite focused. The greed or the hatred, the confusion isn't really coming up, but there just needs to be a little space where the conditions come together that would allow that to arise. And if there's that tendency, sort of like a seed resting in the mind stream, well then given the conditions, it could sprout. So again, taking the example of the walking, that you're going to your walking place, you're really quite mindful, you're not in obsessive thoughts, and if you stayed really present, you'd notice the person there you just say, okay, and walk away. And you may have done that and really seen that that was no effort. That was just how it happened. And another day you go, just as mindful, but just when you get there, you get a little bit distracted by something. And whoosh, in rushes desire or aversion or confusion. And, and quite a few people have been reporting something like this in interviews. As I say, it can seem discouraging because you think, I'm so present and I just have one little pleasant thought that I don't pay much attention to, and the next thing I know, I'm in some incredible fantasy, you know, making up dinner parties and making houses and constructing retreat centers or whatever your fantasy is. How did I get there? You know, my practice was really good. And it, and it is. It's just that it doesn't take much space for these underlying tendencies to shoot up. Don't be discouraged by this. It's just kind of interesting to see it. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It means the practice is quite subtle. There's just that sense of really present and all of a sudden, boom, out from the depths, you know, comes greed or aversion. This is, we're protected against, really what helps us move out of this is wise seeing, panya, wisdom. In other words, understanding. The understanding that place of non-clinging where the mind and heart naturally lets go. So in all three of these levels, in the way we're working in our practice, wise attention is a very useful and important, it's a concept, but we can turn to it as a tool. This was said by the Blessed One, so I have heard. With regard to internal factors, I don't see any other factor like wise attention that can do so much for a bhikkhu or a person in training. That's us. A person who attends wisely abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. 
the Buddha, no other internal factor, single internal factor, that can be so helpful to us. There's one sutta where the Buddha talks about several different ways, all using wise attention in one form or another, that can help us, if we pay attention, to abandon, to see wisely in such a way that these underlying tendencies, these latent you know, seeds, begin to be abandoned, begin to lose their power. And all of these are based in wise attention. So let me actually define what wise attention is, according to the Buddha. It's very pragmatic, as the Buddha so often was. He says, what is wise attention is understanding what is fit for attention and what is not fit for attention. How to pay attention wisely. Now, to us, that can sound like a value judgment. as the kind of value judgment we often put in our practice. This particular pain is not fit for attention. This bliss state is fit for attention. Guess what? He's not talking about that. It's got nothing to do with pleasant and unpleasant. Very practical. Unfit for attention means that when we pay attention in a steady way to this particular experience, whatever it is, when attended to, the underlying tendencies of craving, of becoming, and of ignorance arise if they're not already arisen and get stronger if they are arisen. It's just really basic. You keep paying attention in this particular way, and craving gets stronger, becoming gets stronger, delusion, confusion gets stronger. And what is fit for attention is, of course, just the opposite. That when you're paying attention, meeting with awareness, with kind awareness, this particular thing, whatever's arising, then maybe not in the first second, but over some time, these three, craving, becoming, which is like grasping, and ignorance, either get less if they're already present in the mind stream, or they don't arise. Now, our mindfulness practice is, of course, the perfect, pure example of this. Right? Right? You understand that? How we've been going on and on about how a moment of mindfulness, of pure connection to the bare experience, whatever it is, how in a moment of that connected mindfulness, there's no wanting it to change, there's no aversion, there's no delusion, you know, making up some story, just meeting what it is, in that moment of mindfulness, that's wise attention, right? The, the uh, torments of mind are not increasing and they're not even arising in that moment. So that's the basic description of wise attention. And it's at the root, the Buddha says, of, of wise view, of seeing things clearly, of liberation. And so then he goes through these different areas and how we can use wise attention. So I'm going to talk about some of those tonight. The first one is really our basic mindfulness practice, never to be neglected. Sati, mindfulness, is always our protection, always our ally. So he talks about ways to abandon these tendencies, these torments of mind, the craving. And you've got to realize that within craving is also included the flip side aversion. Because when we're wanting something, we're also wanting something to be different. So it's in a way a shorthand for both. So the first way is to abandon by seeing. That's really our mindfulness practice, seeing things as they are. And again, remembering that the fitness of what's appropriate to pay attention to is not inherent in the object, in whether the object itself seems skillful or unskillful, but in how we pay attention to it. So simple example, and this is the kind we always give, about where to place attention can make the difference. This is a story someone really told me a couple of years ago here, that she was sitting here in this hall day after day, close to the front, 
and some very subtle, repetitive noise began to bother her. And she told me this after having gone through the whole process over a few days. But this repetitive noise, which I'm thinking might have been the ticking of the clock up here, something really soft you don't hear until your mind gets pretty quiet. And she said she started to go through all kinds of aversion and anger and resentment and just really trying to focus. This sound is ruining my samadhi. This sound is ruining my concentration. So you might be able to relate to how we do that. It seems we're paying attention to what's happening, but we're really paying attention to how annoying and inappropriate this particular sound is. And it just kept on spiraling and spiraling until she was really, said, you know, in a state. And then one day it struck her, oh, let me pay attention to the sound itself. I think I've heard that somewhere. <laughs> Which she did, just went right to hearing, hearing, unpleasant. And I was like, oh, I see. The sound wasn't bothering my concentration. My mind was bothering my concentration. So that's a very obvious example, isn't it, of unwise attention and wise attention. Would that it were always so obvious and so easy. And even then it takes us sometimes days to get it because we get so caught up. But sometimes we're attending to the wrong object, so to speak. Sometimes we're attending to the right object, the sound, but in a really harsh way. You know, you're listening to the sound, but in it is thinking, May it stop. May it go away. If I pay attention to this correctly. We do that with pain, you know. We know sound won't stop. May it go away. Another aspect of wise attention is the quality of the attention, which is what we say always with the mindfulness, that, that quality of metta in the mindfulness. The, the Pali word for wise attention, two words, is Yoniso Manasikara. And Andy uh, gave me his own idiosyncratic um, translation of what this means, but I really like it, so I'm going to use it, because it, I think it gives the sense of the quality of wise attention. Yoniso, which is what's usually translated as wise or appropriate, he said, uh, actually comes from the word for womb, yoni. So he translates that as womb-like, nurturing, or held in protection, which I very much like if you remember that mindfulness is our strong protection. And then manasikara, mana is the word usually for mind. Kara comes from um, the verb from which kama also comes, which means action. So it's a nurturing, protecting action of mind, the directing of the mind in a way that protects. You could put it that way. So wise attention is directing the awareness to what's arising in a way that protects us from increasing the torments of mind, from suffering. And so obviously, we can't do that by hating what we're paying attention to. We can try, but it won't work. So this one, one again, about in this wise seeing, something that I found very interesting is how with four of the five hindrances, the hindrances can strengthen and increase if we have slightly unwise attention. We don't quite pay attention to the right aspect. So I'll just give you these examples. With sense desire, the first hindrance. If the way that the sense desire increases is if we pay attention to the experience of the sense desire, not just on the bare experience, but we have an, our emphasis is really on the gratification that we're experiencing in that particular sense pleasure. So for example, if I'm eating a piece of very tasty bread, and I'm just noting tasty, pleasant, nice, that's fine. But if there's that little bit of, hmm, this is really tasty. 
And you're noticing tasty, but the real emphasis is on the gratification. It's sort of how tasty it is for me. I get in there, definitely. And as we're paying attention to that gratification more than the bare experience, the sense desire increases, gets stronger and stronger. I know this might be a little subtle, but play with it. With uh, aversion, it's the same thing. You know how we pay attention, like that woman with the clock. You might be sort of being with the sound, kind of wise attention, but really the attention is a little more with the repugnant nature of that unpleasant experience. Now, this is really so unpleasant. This really shouldn't be allowed to happen in a retreat center like this. I really shouldn't have to deal with such an unpleasant physical experience. You know, just that little tinge of this is really disgusting. That's the place that even though we can fool ourselves that we're being mindful, the unpleasantness, the aversion, the unpleasantness feeds the aversion because we're not just quite present with wise attention. Sloth and torpor, I hate to tell you, it's not quite like that. It's just more that we get overwhelmed and the energy can't match the heaviness or we give in to boredom. But with the other two, with restlessness and remorse, with the remorse, the mental part, it's that we give unwise attention to the spinning reflections, to painful or difficult or sorrowful reflections, and we really get, the attention really goes into thinking about them. And with doubt, that's more obvious, is that the attention goes to getting lost in thinking about these speculative matters. And in the beginning of a retreat, doubt's a little more obvious, you know, because it can just be like, this is stupid, I can't do it, worst practice I ever heard of, or I'm hopeless. But that you can kind of recognize. But as practice goes on, and your attention's getting more subtle, and you've also heard already so many Dharma talks, you know, and that one didn't match this one, and what about that other practice I did, and we're all getting so much more refined, doubt can take quite another turn where we're giving, we actually think we're having profound Dhamma thoughts. And maybe we are. But with unwise attention, we're just going from this to that, and how was it, and how did it used to be, and what would this practice lead to, and how can I really understand no-self, and what did she say about wise attention, and where am I paying attention now, and should I pay to this, and should I, you know, and that's doubt. Unwise attention to speculative matters, (laughs) as the Buddha put it, Reflecting unwisely on dubious matters. Just drop it. <laughs> now, the way that the Buddha describes the, the second um, tendency of becoming or being, how that's a little different from sense desire, and how that gets uh, fueled one way, and this is interesting, This is more when we're in exalted, or just say nice, it doesn't have to be exalted, meditative states. And we really pay attention to how nice they are, how exalted they are, how I am having an exalted meditative state. Now let's face it, we all do that, don't we? Especially the first few times, it's really rare, oh yes, you know, comes and goes, nothing to do with me. (laughs) Pretty hard to really believe that, though we may try. But all we need to do is see that arising. Ah, my exalted meditative state. Isn't this nice? Just notice that. Otherwise, we get lost into unwise attention. And ignorance, of course, increases in one way of unwise attention, as the Buddha described it, is whenever we pay attention to any aspect of experience, any mundane thing, meaning not particularly meditative states, um, in the wrong way, meaning through any of the, the inverted or incorrect perceptions. And this is a whole nother talk, so I could just mention them. But whenever we perceive what is impermanent as permanent, in that moment, 
ignorance is arising and the more we do it, the more it increases. How often do we do that? Or whenever we uh, see what is painful, or what is dukkha, basically, as pleasurable. You may think we don't do that so much, but I've observed that often when I'm not paying attention, I experience craving and even clinging as pleasurable. If I really look, of course, it's clearly dukkha. But that's the wise attention, you really look. When we're kind of half looking, or not quite looking, we may see what's impermanent as permanent, what's dukkha or unreliable as pleasurable, and what's not self, which is everything, as self. So again, not to get discouraged, just to notice that when we do that, we can redirect the attention to the bare perception. And that's really what the mindfulness practice moment to moment is helping us see. I don't know if this example is helpful. I'm trying to illustrate the subtlety of how this can be. Um, Not in a discouraging way, it's actually quite interesting, I think, to me, because it helps answer the question of why, when we've really, on quite deep levels, had insights into impermanence, or had insights into not-self, or the, uh, the suffering, really, and the futility of clinging. How does it keep happening? You know? And it's a lot on these subtle levels of tendency that we don't quite recognize when it's happening. So this example was just one time I was on a retreat. Pretty mindful, you know, the times when you're really noticing pretty much what's going on. You're not getting caught in big stories big reactions of that or anything. And I was sitting eating one day, present, 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 and then I would notice I'd get into a little short thought train of like an image and a thought and an image and a thought, maybe four or five or six little quick images and thoughts. Then I'd see it and I'd come back eating, eating. And after a few times, I noticed there was nothing compelling or even interesting about the images and the thoughts. They weren't particularly pleasant or unpleasant. And I think, well, what? I got interested then, you know. And well, what's the hook here? What is it that kind of sucks the attention away and gets it going? Because I know it's one of these tendencies. So I started just looking really closely when the first image would arise and it would go into the next thought. And what I, I noticed, and this is just particular for me, was that even though the image and the thoughts itself was nothing special, Something about it in the seeing the image and the thought and not quite being mindful, it, there was a, uh, a sense of me, big surprise. Just a little subtle sense of me. And that it's so familiar, you know, it has kind of the comfort of familiarity. And I experienced that as pleasant in a very quick kind of a way. And because that was pleasant and I didn't notice either the image or the pleasantness, then it would go into another thought, another thought. And each one was a little stronger sense of me, a little stronger sense of me. You know? And then we get to the point where the sense of me is far from pleasant anymore, but we wonder how we got there. You know? And it's just, it just was all these little familiarities, so like that. Okay, that's for seeing, and that's a lot of our practice that we've talked of often. I want to move to the other areas. The second one the Buddha speaks about is abandoning these tendencies to suffering, basically, through restraining. And he's talking about restraint at the sense doors, restraint of our awareness at the sense doors. Now that's really, um, if you were in the hall this morning, this is exactly what uh, we were speaking of, someone asked the question or just pointed out the fact that how we talk about noticing seeing, but how quickly from seeing the mind has completely gone off into seeing and wanting and comparing and judging and me and a whole story, and that it happens so fast, you know. And it's hard to just go around noting seeing, seeing, seeing. How does it happen so quickly? And this is exactly what this area of restraint at the sense doors is talking about. It doesn't mean at first that we have to stop up our ears, wear a blindfold, and never let anything in through the sense doors. That doesn't exactly do it. Real restraint at the sense doors, when the mindfulness is strong enough, balanced enough, is that 
exactly what we're talking about when we talk about being with seeing at the point of seeing. We bring in what uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa would call satipanya, mindfulness wisdom, right at that moment of seeing or of hearing or of smelling. So example of there's a really pleasant smell, you recognize that the perception is, oh, that's pizza, maybe we're having pizza for lunch, and you're gone, right? Satipanya would be at the moment of smelling, of recognizing pizza even, noticing, okay, smelling, pleasant, pizza, smelling, pleasant, pizza, and that's all. Just keeping mindfulness wisdom right there at the sense contact. As Ajahn Chah would say sometimes, when you smell an odor with the nose, let it be. Just leave it at the nose. So that's what we do. We leave our mindfulness wisdom here at the nose, at the eye, at the ear, at the touch, at the mind. Otherwise, we're off in whirls of papancha, that proliferation that Steve talked about last night. And papancha is pretty much fed by guess what, you know? Clinging, sense of self, confusion, becoming. So come back to the nose, come back to the ear, come back to the eye. And this doesn't have to be a struggle or a judgment, just seeing what's what. But the other aspect of restraint, and this leads a little into the next ones as well, is that papancha is so quick. That was what the question was pointing to. Who has time to notice seeing? I'm already off in Bali, you know, and I don't even know I saw anything. It's so fast that restraint at the sense door, actually a sense of not leaving all the windows and doors open, to paraphrase Thich Nhat Hanh, you know. Give it a chance. That's one of the reasons we come on a retreat, and this gets into one of the later ones anyway, of of we set up certain conditions, is to make it a little bit easier to see what goes on, to see how fast, you know, the greed goes out through the eye door, the aversion goes out through the ear door, so to speak. I mean, it's not really, you know that, right? It's not really that there's greed and aversion inside of you shooting out your eyes or shooting out your ears. It may feel like that sometimes, I know. But just so you know, it's a figure of speech. That's not who we are. But it happens so quickly that we can give ourselves a break once in a while by, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, don't sit in the living room, open all the windows to the traffic and the neighbors yelling outside and turn on the TV in one side and the stereo behind you and then say, how come there's no quiet? You know, we can give ourselves a chance by restraining how much we, for example, look around. A lot of people have been telling me, and this they've discovered on their own, I think. I don't know, maybe someone said it in a talk, but it really felt like they were discovering it on their own, that as much as they love being outside, sometimes we're finding it very helpful to walk inside just because there was less pull to get lost through the eyes and lost through the ears, lost through smelling. But it's important to recognize this is not from aversion. If you walk inside thinking, you know, I have to fear smelling the wind, you know, or seeing the leaves, and you get into some kind of aversive, fearful state, this is not wise attention. It's not sense restraint. It's just feeding aversion. So remember in all of these that we look at what is helping to reduce in the mind stream clinging and aversion confusion and becoming, what's helping reduce it. So if you're walking inside to keep your senses restrained and over the days you turn into one tight knot of suffering, you know, please go outside. But if you're outside or walking around the dining room and it's like your eyes are just wide open, just greed, looking for something to land on, then do yourself a favor and look down a little bit. Don't look around so much. You can tell, we all take turns being sort of walking mental states, you know? And we can see it in each other. It's too bad we have trouble seeing it in ourselves. But we can see when someone's the walking craving state. You know, you just can't walk by the bulletin board. You can't walk by 
the toilet cleaner in the bathroom. You can't walk by anything. You just need some stimulation, need some stimulation, you know? So I find it really helpful just not to look around. Feet are bad enough. You can tell a lot about everybody just from their feet, but at least it limits it a little bit. So keep it simple, but not out of tightness, not out of a should, out of about what decreases suffering, what helps you be present with an open mind, with an open heart. The third one is called Wise Attention to the Attitude with Which We Use Things. And this really, as in all of these, you can see, it's not just about being on retreat. It's an attitude of wise attention that we can bring to our life, that it expands the idea of cultivating freedom from clinging, freedom from confusion, freedom from sense of self. It doesn't have to be dependent only on deep meditation, that we can pay attention, just like with the sense doors I was just talking about. That doesn't just have to be on retreat. Look in your life, you know. Look in your home. What increases your sense of desire, your sense of wanting, your sense of discontent? If I start going to movies a lot and I find I'm wanting more and I'm feeling disconnected, guess what? I don't need to do that, you know. We can just pay attention. So it's really a very useful thing. So wise attention to the attitude with which we use things, which really means paying attention to how we're relating to the basic necessities of our life, how we use our food, how we use our clothing, how we use the requisites that we have here, you know, our room, our seat in the hall, the necessities. We all need things to be healthy. We need to eat. We need to be protected from the elements. We need to have a modicum of comfort and ease so that we can practice. But look at how we're relating to each of these things. Are we relating in a way that increases our fear and anxiety, that increases our craving and clinging? Are we relating in a way that brings a kind of an ease, a peace in the world? I notice for myself, both on retreat and off, but we can stick to retreat. It's a microcosm for the rest of our life. I have a sense of ease, a sense of trust, a sense of, of peace in the environment. When I know I'm using just what I need, I take what I need within a sense of how much there is for everyone else and just leave it there. When I'm operating from a sense of fear or that scarcity model, what if there's not more later? How does that feel? You know, what does that engender? in the heart, in the mind? What is one's relationship to oneself, to the other people? I know when I'm in scarcity model, everyone else is my competitor for whatever it is that's scarce. And what it breeds in my mind is a quality of fear and clinging that is quite a lot of suffering. It's burdensome. Just a very simple example. When... um, get into saving food on a retreat. For example, I'll be at breakfast and I'll think, oh, I really would like to have a banana for tea instead of an apple. And they usually don't serve bananas, so I'll take two bananas. If there's one left at the end, at least I do that, and then save it for tea. So already, I'm in this clinging mode. I'm anxious. I have to kind of hang around and wait and see when do I think everyone's done? When is it too soon to take the banana? If you take it too soon, then you feel really bad for the rest of the day. Who saw me? Can I get away with it? You sneak back at noon and put it out on that table and write Donna on it, you know, because you can't stand yourself anymore. It's so much suffering. And even if you save it and it was extra and all, then you get it, what do you do with it? You put it back there on the shelves where there's no room, or you take it to your room, and then at tea time, do I go to my room first and get the banana, or do I take the tea, and then do I go to the room? It's just torment, you know? Just take the apple and forget about it. It's so much more peaceful, so much more at ease, you know? And so I see you get the drift, and it just, 
is really a drag. So watch what it increases in the mind. If, as sometimes happens, there really is a need, it's a physical need. And you know if it's a physical need or you're rationalizing. If you're rationalizing for half an hour or so why you really need it, forget about it. <laughs> if it's a real need, you don't have to rationalize. You know you need it, you know? And so then it's just something you do, and it's, it might, you might see, oh, this is a drag, but then you let go of it. You do it because you need to do it. It's not it's also wise attention. You're not engendering, you know, that wanting, that anxiety, that fear. You're just doing what needs to be done. So you notice if you're hoarding blankets, you know, if you need two or three seats in the hall, just in case, that just in case mind is always a sign. But don't do it out of judgment. Look and see what leads to an ease of being. What leads to freedom of heart and mind? What leads to non-clinging? And what leads to suffering? And that's what's at the root of it. Not what anyone else thinks about you. Not who saw you take the fifth orange. Just what leads to more ease. What leads to freedom? And if a lot of you listened to that, that tape of Semedo, which I listened to before we played it, and this really quite amused me, and if it amused you, towards the end, that was a talk given at Spirit Rock last year. Do you remember towards the end when he was talking about being on eight precepts and set? Now, up until then, everyone was laughing along with him. And then he said all the food in the yogi fridge should be donated to the homeless. <laughs> Did you notice this kind of dead silence? There was <laughs> a little panicky titter and dead silence. I thought it was a riot. Like, oh my God, could he really do that? <laughs> uh. So that's really noticing our attitude with which we use things for our own freedom. Often, um, this is a translation of a chant often that monks and nuns do before they eat. Sort of, uh, it, it's from some things the Buddha said, but it's a way of reminding oneself of this attitude. May I eat this meal with mindfulness, not for pleasure nor for beautification, only for the nourishment and continuation of this body, to keep it from harm, to avoid hunger and overeating. Thus I will be free from bodily suffering and living at ease. So we're allowed to live at ease and be comfortable, free from hunger, free from overeating. Just what we need to live at peace. The next aspect is abandoning these tendencies by the translation that's usually used is enduring, enduring what is difficult. I like patience better because, at least for me, when I hear enduring, um, and again, I know Ajahn Sumedho used that word a lot, but for me, enduring has uh, the connotation of a passive aversion, you know, when I'm enduring something, okay, I'm here, I'm enduring, knowing it'll go away. And I'm sure in the way Sumedho is using it and also in this translation, it doesn't mean to have that connotation. It has the a connotation of patience, which is actually an aspect of metta. That ability to simply be with what is difficult, with a mind and heart that is non-reactive. You know, that is present, non-reactive, neither pushing away or trying to control, but really at ease. Reflecting wisely to be with difficult experience without getting caught. This is really the heart of equanimity, the peace of equanimity leading directly into the mind of non-clinging, that we can be with what is, without reacting, without needing to change it. I don't think I need to say a whole lot about it because we have talked about this a lot before and it's obviously a big aspect of practice here. But it's important. It's one of the reasons that there is this emphasis when you're sitting of not moving the first second that the sensations get unpleasant or difficult. And I know it's a delicate balance not to get into a kind of 
masochistic sitting with it or locked in aversion sitting with it or the idea of I have to be kind to myself so you move immediately. But to really learn to cultivate this, said that, the, the aspect of developing a mind that's like the earth, you know, as vast as the earth and as unmoving. No matter what we put on it, something beautiful, something ugly, if we spit on the earth, if we plant a flower, the earth doesn't say, no, I won't take this, send it away. It doesn't say, yes, this is nice. It accepts us all. It doesn't say, you, you can stay here, you have to go, you know. just accepts us all. Developing a mind with that vastness and spacious acceptance is really what this long enduring mind, as Suzuki Roshi used to say, is about. Both to external situations, such as the noisy neighbor, the weather when you're feeling too cold and you don't have the right clothes, the bell ringing for sitting when you really could use another half hour to sleep, whatever it might be externally, and also the internal, the unpleasant mental state, the meditation that isn't going the way you like it, the unpleasant sensation in the body, just the mind and heart that's vast enough to be with it all. Asian stories, that's why I really liked listening to Sameda. A lot of his talk was about that, wasn't it? Just the long, enduring mind. Practicing in Asia gives everybody great stories about that. Like his one of just sweating through his three robes as he was going out for alms round, you know. It's, it's a great one. You just could feel how completely grimy and wet and uncomfortable it is, and you have to do it day after day after day, you know. And a friend of mine who was a monk would do that, and uh, he'd wash his robes every day, but after a while he said, oh, I don't need to wash the robes, I'll just you know, wear them. And one other monk finally said to him, are you deliberately trying to make your robes stink? You know, it just builds up. But you don't have to go to Asia. I'm going to spare you Asian stories, because you can start to think one has to go to a really extremely difficult situation in order to develop the heart of patience, the long-enduring mind. And you don't. Sometimes what's helpful about going to a really difficult situation is it's so difficult, you, you're just so up against it that you have to. You know, there's nowhere else to go. You went to all the trouble to go to this place. And so you have this motivation to somehow find a way to be there in it. And that's a lot of what practicing in Burma or Thailand or India or whatever can really do. But guess what, folks? The same mind huh, is going on here. I've heard from two-fifths of you, and I'm sure the other three-fifths of you have gone through your own similar things, where even if externally it may seem like a silly difficulty, in your experience it's really hard, isn't it? Even if it's sleepiness or some noise, you know, or some like the guys when they were scraping out here for those days, or when the snake, I heard a snake came in the hall one day. It's all <laughs> yeah, you didn't all know that, huh? <laughs> and what is really useful, why we tell these stories, it's always after you've come out the other end, is discovering that after we go through the aversion and all the how can I fix it, and when we finally give up, and say, okay, I'm really here, let me be here. And you discover that you can be tremendously at peace and happy, even blissful, so happy. And the circumstances haven't changed, really haven't changed. When that happens and you let yourself see it, something in you just can't believe anymore that you can't bear it and that that's really true. It just can't believe it anymore. Like I know when I was a nun in Thailand, from the beginning to the end, was like a world of difference. I hated everything for two months. And at, at the end of a year, I was so happy. What changed? Well, I don't think the climate changed. I don't think any of the circumstances changed. Just the mind and heart's ability to be there and really see how superficial 
our preferences and our likings and dislikings are on so many levels. So when you find yourself in a real struggle with something that you just think, I cannot endure this, you know, but you have for a moment, it's not because sometimes it is too much to endure and that's the next thing. That's what's so tricky. But don't let yourself go there too soon. When your mind is first thinking, I can't bear this another second. Two things. One, see if you can expand into the bigger picture and see, oh, really? Somebody's snoring in the next room? Do I really think that that is something that is unendurable in this life? I can't practice anymore because of this? And, you know, even though in the moment it feels so, you can get bigger and go, okay, maybe there's a way. Maybe I can come back and try again. And the other, I forgot the other. (laughs) I hope I wrote it down. (laughs) Oh, yes, I did write it down. That's lucky. The other is to remember when we're going, when the mind's going, okay, that's it. I'm out of here, you know. As have you hit that place, if this happens one more time, I'm leaving. I'm leaving at six weeks. I'm leaving at four weeks. I'm never coming back again. See how much of the unbearableness is actually arising from being present with this moment's experience and how much of it is the mind's imagining into the interminable future moment after moment after moment of this unbearable grading experience and how it's going to be forever this way. Is it really what's happening you can't bear or that thought that you can't bear? And a lot of times, I wouldn't say always, but a lot of times it's that thought, which, oh, that's a thought. Maybe if I just come back to here, ah. So what is it that's really causing the effect of increased clinging and aversion and confusion in that moment. Is it the presence of that difficult thing? Or is it the unwise attention to the aversion to that thought, if only this would stop, I would be an arhant by now. Just notice, where's the attention? What's increasing the suffering? And then, what I was going to say is, when you actually come through one of these difficult things, even if it's a little thing, but you come through and you see that the thing's still happening and you're really okay with it, really at peace. Don't just go, oh, I was so stupid, you know, what was that all about? Notice the difference. Notice the peace and the spaciousness that comes from that cultivation of acceptance, from that cultivation of mindful presence, that that real equanimity. That's the real power of mind and heart. Don't belittle it and think, oh, I was just, you know, in yogi mind. Let yourself draw confidence from that. Well, I don't think we're going to get through all of these. Okay, I'll have to speed up or shorten. The next one is, and this is what's really interesting, is avoiding that the Buddha actually said that through wise attention, wise reflection, there are some things we need to avoid, which doesn't sound like, you know, acceptance is the one we always hammer on. So it's very tricky. I see why avoidance was listed second after acceptance, after patience. The things the Buddha describes to avoid is what is dangerous, like a savage elephant or a poisonous snake or a cesspit, you know, or a sewer. Okay, that's like a no-brainer. We would avoid those things. That's sensible. But also we can here learn to avoid what's internally dangerous, you know, what will internally bring us to confusion and suffering. That doesn't mean, this is where we look at the motivation really carefully, that doesn't mean we avoid whatever we don't like, Oh, if I hear this unpleasant thing again, I might get angry, so I better just avoid it and go walk and take a walk, you know. Not that. Not if I, you know, stay on eight precepts, I might experience some hunger, and that would, be unpa- that would be unpleasant for me, so I better avoid that. Not that. But really looking with wise attention, what really prevents or does not support our developing awareness or developing mindfulness? This is one aspect of renunciation. In fact, look at the setup 
of this whole retreat. We've structured it so that quite a lot of things you're having to avoid, we're avoiding them for you, you know? And that's really as a way to support the developing awareness, as a way to increase wise attention. So we don't have TVs in the lobby with CNN on every half hour, you know? There's a reason for that. It's not just by chance. We're here in the middle of the country and not in Times Square. It makes it a little bit easier. We ask you not to get your mail. You know why, those of you who are getting their mail, know why we ask you not to get your mail. Because it makes it more difficult to really just notice what's going on. So, there's we can avoid not only what's dangerous, but what really does not support our developing practice, our developing awareness. And I just want to point that out because sometimes we can get quite idealistic. And this ties into the next one, which is actually removing. And I'll talk about these together. We can get quite idealistic about not avoiding anything or not removing, which is like redirecting the attention when you're really caught in something. That I should be able to be with anything, right? I should be able to be mindful in the middle of any activity in my daily life. Therefore, avoidance is the baby way out. (laughs) Or avoidance is not going to support me. It's just, okay, I can be mindful if I avoid these things, but what good is that if I can't be mindful in Times Square? This is idealistic. What's so interesting about the Buddha is he was so practical. Look at what's true. If you can be totally mindful with CNN on every half hour in the middle of Times Square, that's great. If you can't, let's get real and do what helps us to cultivate a stronger mindfulness, to see what really increases our craving and our sense of self and our confusion and what helps it to go away, you know. So the Buddha talked about, for instance, in life, avoiding unwise or unskillful companions. Now that's interesting. It's not saying they're bad people, but just knowing like you can hang out with certain people and you end up doing things that you really don't feel good about. And if you stay alone or hang out with other people, you don't do those things. Just the power of suggestion, the power of just doing what people are doing. The Buddha saw this as a very strong influence and said, okay, avoid those unwise people for your own well-being. So that kind of avoidance, not out of aversion, out of skillfulness. The actual avoidance, the renunciation itself, may begin, in in the beginning, may be unpleasant. And actually some aversion may come up. So it's not that if we're with something, the first second there's aversion, that means we should avoid it because the torments are coming up. That's that's a trick. Just like talking about with the patient endurance, if you stay with something, and there's a lot of aversion in that renunciation, but after a while, you see that really craving is getting less. Serenity is getting stronger. The heart is opening. If you can see that, then that's the sign of wise attention. But if you're paying attention, paying attention, being with something, and the longer you're with it, the stronger the greed gets, or the fear gets, or the terror gets, or the sense of self gets, then that's a sign it may be something to avoid. So just the last way I'll quickly mention, it goes with avoiding, is the Buddha described it as removing, which means in reflecting wisely, A bhikkhu sees that there's an arisen thought that's affected by sense desire, or by ill will, or by cruelty, or you see that there's any kind of arisen, unwholesome, unskillful state, and you don't endure it. In other words, you don't say, oh well, so what? They come, they go, I'll just let it take me until it's over. You say, no, okay, I'm not putting up with it. Okay, on the most obvious level, When attention is strong and balanced and the energy is balanced, that's really a point of resolution of what Joseph likes to call the sort of wisdom. When you start off in that fantasy for the tenth time and you go, no, I don't need to do this. Not now. And you just come back. Resolution, not aversion. 
Now that's pretty clear cut. I'm just not enduring this anymore. I'm not feeding it. But there are times, both with this removal and avoidance that kind of go together, when the arisen unskillful dhamma, whether it's a strong emotion like fear or terror or rage, is so strong. You can't just go to the sense door and notice it and have it go away. You can't just say, okay, terror, not now, and come back to the breath, you know? It's not possible. So with wise attention, this is the example for removal the Buddha gives. We can actually redirect our awareness, not out of fear or, or you know, running away, but in order to bring a balance, a spaciousness, a brightness back to the mind. I'm going to go a few minutes, only four or five minutes over. But you guys have to sit there. Okay, this is an example of this from the Buddha. It says, in this Ananda, a monk dwells contemplating, now monk means none, it means all of us, dwells contemplating the body, ardent, clearly aware, and mindful, putting aside worldly desire and dejection. Now that is the classic way he describes the foundation of mindfulness, being aware of the body. So he's doing basically mindfulness practice on the body. And as he dwells contemplating the body, some bodily object arises, or a physical discomfort, or a mental drowsiness, causes his mind to wander to external things. In other words, he gets completely distracted. Then in Nanda, that bhikkhu's attention could be directed to some inspiring object of thought. So what is usually meant by an inspiring object of thought is one of the reflections on the qualities of the Buddha, on the qualities of Dhamma or Sangha. But it could also be your own virtues, whatever inspires your faith. But it's the deliberate redirection of attention. As he thus directs his mind to an inspiring object of thought, delight springs up in him. Now these are translations of specific Pali mental states. That's Pamoja. Delight springs up in him. When he is delighted, rapture arises. That's piti. When he experiences rapture, his body is calmed down. Tranquility. With his body, he experiences joy, or sukha. Being joyful, his mind is concentrated. And that's a classic delineation of some of the order of how going from a kind of a joy in the mind, the mind gets calm, piti, no, piti arises, then the mind gets calm, then there's sukha, then there's concentration. At that point, he says, he reflects, my mind is concentrated, the aim, the reason I was reflecting on this has been achieved, he then withdraws his mind from that conscious reflection and returns to mindfulness of body. So that's a very deliberate, you could say it's removal or avoidance, but it's a very deliberate cultivation of wise attention. Just staying lost in the thing is only increasing confusion. Consciously reflecting on some inspiring theme, just until the mind is spacious, bright, gladdened, calm, concentrated a bit, and then come back to the meditation. Another example from not from the Buddha, this is just as we see in our practice, when you're overcome by very strong mental state, rage, or take fear or anxiety, you know it, you're trying to be aware, but the energy of the mental state is just stronger than the energy of the mindfulness. They're just out of balance at that time. You try to come to the body, but even touching with awareness the sensations of the body only highlights the anxiety. It only feeds back into the fear. And you see, it's not so much an aversion of, I don't like this, but this is just increasing the suffering. It's increasing the confusion. So with wise attention, we place the awareness other. You may first try going to hearing or seeing, completely out of the body. If that's not strong enough, you may then reflect on an inspiring theme. If that's not strong enough, then at that point we tell you to actually break the meditation, go outside and take your mind off it completely and go for a walk or go into the woods. You know? It's not out of running away. 
is to, out of wise attention, to rebalance and focus the mind and heart. You know, I talked last time about that idea of diving into the wave when it's difficult. But sometimes the waves are so big that all we can really do is put our toe in the water. We, sh- we have no business being out there in the waves in the first place. And it's wise attention to simply recognize that and redirect rather than just get lost and overwhelmed. That's an important part of the practice. So I'll just end with a very, very short poem, if I can find it. This is from Lala, who is a Kashmiri mystic, a woman poet. Some people abandon their homes. Others abandon hermitages. All this renunciation does nothing if you're not deeply conscious. Day and night, be aware with each breath and live there. So can we just sit quietly for a moment? Thank you.